welcome to Polly Pages. Books. <laughs> the podcast where genuine Polly people read the texts that have shaped our community and culture. I'm Claire. I'm Sebastian. And I'm Michael. And in this bonus episode, we will be discussing polyamory, intimate practice, identity, or sexual orientation. This is an academic article published in the journal Sexualities in 2014, volume 17, authored by Christian Cleese. Christian Cleese is a senior lecturer at the Department of Sociology at the Manchester Metropolitan University in the UK. He has a PhD in sociology and a master's in gender and ethnicity. But before we get into this very interesting article, I want to welcome our very special co-host. Hello, Michael. Where are you joining us from? And why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? I am joining from Charlotte, North Carolina in the United States. My pronouns are any. I identify as gender nonconforming, so I'm happy to use any sorts of pronouns, although because of my build, people generally just go with he and him, and that's fine if that makes you comfortable. I prefer they and them generally because I don't like gender as a general rule. Um, nice. <laughs> I am a practicing member of the polyamorous community for about 10 years now, and I did my master's and undergraduate in sexual ethics, specializing in polyamory in uh, philosophy and applied ethics, as well as a fine arts degree of sculpture focusing on sexual and polyamorous art. But I am currently best known for the podcast Probably Poly, which if you want to find it is really easy, probablypoly.com, <laughs> nice and straightforward, and where I talk about the ethics of ethical non-monogamy through an existentialist lens and really relationship ethics generally through the lens of non-monogamy because I think it's a more critical lens and therefore a wider and more interesting starting place than starting from accepted sort of hegemonic norms. Awesome. It's so great to have you. We'll definitely link the Probably Poly podcast. And hi, Sebastian, where are you? Uh, I am in Boston, where I always am. And where are you, Claire? Uh, I am in London, UK. So thanks everyone for joining me and let's dive into this episode. Michael, what did you think of the, the article as a whole before we go into the subsections that we want to talk about? I mean, I thought it was a particularly well-written article. I agreed with the primary conclusions that the author comes to, but I did think that it didn't, like, it mentioned the general problems with thinking about sex, um, about thinking about polyamory as a sexual orientation, but I didn't feel like it developed them enough that somebody who isn't deeply familiar with the ethical problems surrounding that approach would get from reading the article. So if you just read the article and you don't have that background, they're like, well, some groups and coalition building find it problematic. It makes it hard to build bridges. And they just sort of move on. And they don't really delve into both how it does that and how when you fail to do that, you become complicit in helping build the oppression of those other groups, especially in lenses like uh, intersectional feminism and critical race theory. Sebastian, what did you think? Yeah, I kind of agree. I, I think my biggest challenge with it, like I, I think it did did start to address this, but I just I felt like something was missing. I guess it spent a lot of time diving into and defining really what sexual orientation is broadly, which I think is necessary to build that background. Um, but I do think that looking more deeply at how polyamory fits into this and the challenges of uh, labeling polyamory and that specifically as a sexual orientation. Um, I agree with Michael, but there was, there was a little bit lacking in sort of the latter half of the paper and what they're explaining and, and how much they're 
talking about those issues. Yeah, I definitely thought it was uh, exceptionally well researched. It's very clear um, that it's academic. It's not. It's not necessarily <laughs> super accessible. But that's why we're here. Sure. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> um, so yeah, he starts off by, or they start off by um, defining sexual orientation from, I think, like a very historical point of view, which. As a philosopher, I loved because I was like, ah, Foucault's in here, Gramsci's in here, Deleuze is in here. Um, but essentially, it was, I, I think, as you said, necessary groundwork that ended up taking a really, really long time. Um, and it basically comes down to, um, I would say, psychological versus biological was a big one that he drew out. And then he had this interesting addition of legal politics. So essentially, all the way through this, he's, he's trying to explain what people have been meaning for a very long time since the 19th century about sexual orientation and taking us through it in this way I think allows the reader to understand the particular later on the bit that sort of stuck out for me though that was kind of the takeaway was right at the very beginning when he talks about Sexual orientation as a description of who and what one desires sexually, one's object choice. And this is to refer to whether one is heterosexual, homosexual, or bisexual. He also talks about durable dispositions. And I think those were the key tenets that came out of this. It was uh, specifically about object choice. It was specifically usually quite binary. And it was specifically about like something that's durable, which we've come across before when we, were, we did a, an episode on asexuality and it was that's sort of like a big calling um, flag for a for asexual community is that this is an enduring feature of their sexual disposition. Would you guys agree those are the key terms that come out when he's trying to define what sexual orientation means? Yeah, I think that is how they define sexual orientation and the history of the discourse, uh, except that there's also a lot of the legal terms, right? So they, they did relate those to exactly how those get into the legal and rights discourse as well. I mean, I thought that was a core element about sexual orientation is that it's often the primary axis on which it's written uh, and one which it's made legible for governments was the, the other thing that I took away from his introduction of sexual orientation as opposed to identity is that there's a lot of laws built around it. No, I definitely agree with that. I think all through as, as they're defining these different terms and it, it does center around the, how it, the legal implications of these definitions and and that's sort of the underpinning of where a lot of this come from and why it's important. I mean, I, I don't know necessarily how much I agree with, with the way that he's characterizing sexual orientation in this beginning part, although I, I agree that it is how it is le- used as a legal currency. The author gives a nod to it on several occasions that, that, that this, this idea of what sexual orientation is in terms of it being enduring and about object choice, um, gendered object choice, and it being binary, he does give some nods all the way through about how that is basically a cultural representation. I think they definitely use some language from time to time where they'll say something like usually construed as, or you can see in the discourse there's a consistent tendency to say. So I don't know that they're saying that that's how they think it should be defined either. I think they're just saying that when you see the discourse on it, it tends to have those features when you're talking about sexual orientation. Right, but if this is the base, the basis of you then later saying and does this thing, does X fit into Y? But you're taking a, uh, you're not taking like a, a deeper critical look at why Y is the thing that it is. And a stance as well. Just I think it should be used this way, so we all, at least are all on the same page. Because he never clearly says, "Here's what I am using this word to mean for the rest of the paper." Now that we've discussed 
what it can mean, it must mean X, so that you know what I'm talking about, which I thought was interesting as well. I mean, put, putting aside the, the fact that what he's taking as a, I guess, the essentialist argument of, of sexual orientation definitions, putting aside that there, that's social construction and that there are cultural implications in that, all of that aside, when he begins to talk about sexual orientation as uh, an access to get into like legal rights language, um, this, I think, for me, is when it crystallizes into being something that is now like a label outside of the person while using that label they are also having to like take on the normative power of that label the use of sexual orientation labels is not merely engaging in like a verbiage of like what what i like anymore it becomes something that actually uh, is productive on the person that's using it so for example he says on uh, page 88 Queer theorists, again, quite general, but he does reference Butler. Queer theorists have highlighted the normative ways in which sexual orientation thinking regulates gender presentation and sexual desire. Right. And I think that is, for me, quite key. That Once we start using these terms in a way that's, that's sort of legal, we imagine them to be outside ourselves instead of, well, whilst at the same time, maybe, engaging in like a, a normative feedback loop. Well, and that's the paradox, right? The value of sexual orientation is as a legal tool. And the downside of sexual orientation is how it normalizes and in many cases commodifies the orientation or identity that you are collapsing down into that tool. I think this entire article can almost be seen as that kind of like epistemic violence that's happening in the middle of that. Right. You have to use it in an essentialist way for it to be useful in everyday language. But at the same time, it, it in itself, sexual orientation is kind of like in any, even the most uh, sort of like long standing, if you like, um, sexual orientation labels. There's something about sexuality that is fluid. It sort of withstand like that withstands in people's understanding of what sexuality is and what sexual orientation is, I, I believe. So I think this entire article, that that for me sort of is the crux. There's this, as I said, epistemic violence happening between what is helpful in the real world has to be essentialist, but that is then going to be reductionist in its essence. So you said to be helpful in language, it has to have that quality, but I would say, or in everyday language, but I would say it only needs to have that quality of fixedness to be helpful legally it doesn't have to be it doesn't need that to be useful in everyday language so i know people that identify as polyamorous as a sexual orientation as a way to describe the enduring quality of it in themselves but not linking it to the larger argumentative context that this article is set in but unless i missed him saying it or that unless i missed them saying it there is no argument in this article for calling polyamory is sexual orientation except gaining access to legal protections and rights. That is the entire argument for why you would do that in this paper. I'm not saying there aren't other arguments, but I didn't see it here. No, I, I agree with you. I think all of the arguments here for being able to classify it and in some of the other things I read is specifically for the purposes of being able to gain legal protections. Mm -hmm. And I I do agree with your your other comment that it's, it's really only an important distinction or definition of orientation in that legal context, whereas in the broader sense of, of language, it's, it can have different usages. One of the things I highlighted is a quote from another article, the, the difference of 
in language orientation versus preference, where from the legal sense, an orientation is a specific definition. But in the broader use of the word, it, it can be interchangeable with the word preference or something else, which is much more of a personal choice of how you want to identify yourself and self-label. But for everything we're talking about here, we're, we're looking at really specific ways of defining this so that it has broader implications. I mean, I don't. I know that he is focusing a lot on this as a legal, um, and and we definitely need to discuss that um, because it is such a, a huge takeaway from this. Um, but I do. I think that there are other nods to ways in which polyamory could be conceived as part of. I, I don't think he's advocating for it, but I think that, for example, he speaks about his re- his studies um, where reference to identity has been. I guess it is a self report, but have been reported very similar to. I guess what you would call classical coming out narratives. That for me is like very far away from from the legal jargon that he then goes into, but I think was an important like lived experience of people who are self-identifying as polyamorous. But identity isn't the same as orientation, right? Well, I think in this in this paper he is collapsing it into the same thing. And I don't think he spends a lot of time um making enough of a, a distinction between the two of those things. Yeah, no, the the paper is is it an identity or is it a sexual orientation as separate? Those are the options. I mean, I think there's a third option, right? The intimate practice. Is it just an intimate practice? Is it an identity or is it an orientation, sexual orientation? But I, I believe that he only discusses sexual, sexual orientation in this. I don't, I think that he basically collapses. I, and obviously sexual orientation is just one thing that you can use as an identity, but he doesn't discuss it the the question of intimate practice or identity nearly as much he does with sexual orientation in this. Well, but that's the alternative, right? So the question is, I mean, generally polyamory is more considered by, in my experience of the community, most people think of it as an identity. And then the question is, should we be advocating for trying to convert it to an orientation because then we could get legal rights? And so my sense is that the entire article is framed as here's why it may or may not be good to be a sexual orientation. And the automatic default is instead of an identity. Well, and I would, I think part of that comes back to the, the broader discussion of what is the, the difference between an orientation and an identity. And there's the, there's the legal aspects of that for legal purposes an orientation is something very specific, but I, I don't think that necessary that there is that, you know, it's a very binary way of looking at it identity versus orientation. It is a broader discussion about the difference between what identity versus orientation is. And I think that's why they, the, the paper starts there trying to lay that out, but why are we distinguishing between that? And I, I think that comes back to this is because it's for legal purposes. And in my mind, I don't think that, that there is necessary that distinction. Okay, well, let, let's stop banding around it then. What did you guys see as the most important reasons that it would be a bad idea for people who are polyamorous to try and partake in like an LGBTQIA plus label to try and engage in sexual orientation language? I really liked the, the Butler quote, queer theorists have highlighted the normative ways in which sexual orientation thinking regulates gender presentation and sexual desire. My... General takeaway is that sexual orientation as a strategy is not a general liberatory practice, right? It is a pressure relief valve for hegemonic adjustment. So what that means is right, that the hegemonic constellation is not stable. It has to adjust in order to survive. That's the thing that allows it to continue to exist generation after generation. 
And so it has to have systems to allow petitioning for membership into the acceptable behavioral group in order to adjust for cultural change while still oppressing a large group of the population. In the legal language of sexual orientation, they have the perfect tool to do that because they get to create a very binary, very specific, very narrow definition of what counts for a certain acceptable form of behavior. And they get to use a lot of essentialist language and everybody who joins in that group has to agree that in the end, the hegemony is basically right. So it's not that I want to be gay, I have no choice. It would be better if I wasn't, but since I have no choice, please don't persecute me, is the sort of claim you're making when you say, okay, it's a orientation, not an identity, not a spectrum, it's one specific thing, right? And like from a sexual orientation perspective for polyamory or non-monogamy is particularly entertaining to me because what the claim is, as they say in this paper, is that then it's not a choice, it's this, call it what you will, genetic experience or something outside of yourself that forces you to be non-monogamous, and therefore it's, it's abnormal in some sense. And it actually must concede that the normal is monogamy, that monogamy has this it's the normal, it's the default, it's how humans normally are, and you know, we're just, we're just genetically unlucky, we have no choice, we were born this way, just let us be us, nobody's going to change their minds because of what we're doing, because it's not a choice. That's super confusing, because all of the evidence we have about human sexuality would tend to indicate that in the natural state or natural environment, humans would be non-monogamous, and that everybody in our society has actually made the choice to act differently than their native state. And so you are actually claiming that all of that's a lie and participating in this sort of general cultural cover-up that monogamy is the norm. That monogamy is genetically normal, it's what people should be doing, it's what people are expected to do, and only if you are divergent in some majorly important genetic way are you going to be different than that. And then always as a minority. I think this is where the power of not using non-monogamy sort of might come from. Like, if you're using the phrase non-monogamy to describe anything you're doing or whatever, I feel like that for me personally is, is the reason why I don't use non-monogamy as my identity. By using it, it's, it's saying I'm something other than this, whereas I feel like at least with polyamory, there is a sort of an independent word almost. Um, it does feel a bit like a consolation prize to the sort of like he hegemonic monoculture, but that that is exactly why I think people make the decision. I mean, I don't want to speak for everyone, but that's why I made the decision to not use non-monogamy as the title of my practice, my identity, or my intentions. I was going to say, well, for the purposes of this paper only, it gets way more problematic if you're just trying to make polyamory uh, a sexual identity and not trying to look at non-monogamy as an identity because polyamorous are still quite majorly middle to upper middle class, white, highly educated, English-speaking people as the vast majority. And so when that group says, oh, we want special protections, and again, as the article lays out how this is problematic, when you sign up for an orientation, you tend to abandon the greater civil rights movement in order to get your own particular piece of the pie, when you're already a group that's one of the most privileged groups in the GSM community, it's super problematic. I mean, the, the bit that really resonated with me to sort of to speak to that is the joy of polyamory, that you cannot be categorized like this. 
So it's not saying I'm not monogamous, it's saying we we transcend these binaries. A bit like how uh, they speak about in here, bisexuality can be seen as a very similar thing. I'm, I'm not going to allow the, the dichotomy to be controlling my identity. Yeah, sorry, I was responding to sort of a tangential point about the usage of the word polyamory in this context only. Yeah. So I agree with you, and I prefer having active terms as opposed to non-monogamy because it does set up what appears to be a false and misleading dichotomy. It also makes it sound like there's only one way to be non-monogamous, like there's one way to be monogamous instead of like a million ways to be non-monogamous. I do take your point that obviously there is a huge issue with with um, if you were to claim that polyamory was like the the one non-monogamy label that you were going to try and enshrine in some sort of like legally protected way that would obviously be like a very um exclusionary and potentially divisive way to sort of also rack up certain like class economic race Mm -hmm. dynamics um (laughs) but that's what we're talking about here right because if in i mean legalese is very binary so if you do get polyamory specifically enshrined as an orientation that is exactly what you've just done Right. You have gotten just polyamory enshrined. You're spending civil rights efforts, civil rights resources, civil rights money to get this one specific group protections instead of focusing on everybody. And, and I think the other problem with that, and this goes back to your other point as well, about trying to classify polyamory very specifically as a sexual orientation, is that minoritizing of it and treating it as this really small, specific minority that falls into these very specific categories and then protecting only that group. And one issue is, as you're saying, is it's offering protection to a very specific group and not to the broader polyamorous context. But my other issue really with this this whole thing about treating polyamory as this minority is what you said, Michael, about uh, being the other and being doing something wrong but not having a choice, almost this, this sure. idea behind it of, of wrongness and otherness and, and sticking people out. Whereas they also talk about here sort of as opposed to treating it as a, as a minoritizing view, as a, as a minority view, you can look at it as a universal view that some people are buying into or are practicing more fully, where if you look at broader monogamous culture in the States, a lot of people in monogamous relationships aren't actually monogamous for one reason or another. Almost nobody. Right. And so whether that's quasi-monogamy or it's through uh, non-consensual monogamy, cheating or whatever it is, it comes to the question of, given that outside of people who are actively practicing poly in a, in a structured way or in a productive and honest way, there, there are plenty other facets culturally and societally that promote or even encourage non-monogamy. Um, some of the ideas around sort of masculinity involve being non-monogamous even dishonestly. And so it comes to this question of, is some form of non-monogamy actually a minority view or is it really universal? And how does that, I don't know exactly how that impacts the discussion of sexual orientation. I mean, it makes it harder to define the orientation as a subset for protection. It might not impact the discussion about sexual orientation, but it would certainly impact a discussion about identity, a discussion that isn't being explicitly had here. It's being left as like, basically talking about sexual orientation, talking about legal stuff. But but I think what you're talk, what you're speaking to is about identity as a, as a sort of like a more broad term i think he, he refers to it at some point here as a as an umbrella term does he not does he use that term or does that mean i don't remember him using that well he might have said that was how the word was originally thought of because for sure polyamory was originally constructed to be an umbrella term for all of non-monogamy not for a specific type of relationship practice 
it is not that anymore. And now, now it's sort of become the other way around. Right now, it's a specific type of non-monogamous practice. Right, mostly because a lot of people in other non-monogamous practices felt like it didn't well describe them, and so they just rejected it as a claim. And partly for the reasons that you said, Claire, which was that it felt like it was signaling a lot of standard normative behaviors, like it was focusing long-term relationships, it was uh, focusing close, loving, closed, maybe triadic relationships, often with expected gender um, expression, like one male, two women, maybe attractive, young, photogenic kind of groupings. Here's the reason why at the beginning I, I brought up how Eurocentric this discussion about sexual orientation is, though, because it's come from a very, like, Eurocentric or uh, Northern-centric, if you like, discussion about sex and gender. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can see this at the back of, like, for example, pre- and post-colonial sexualization and sexual orientations in, like, African countries and other previously occupied countries. One of my major criticisms, which I've said on many interviews and many times in this podcast, is that the whole of the poly culture and the poly bank of text is very homogenous and it is very mm-hmm. white and American. And when I see this, it would have been very interesting for me to approach sexual orientations with a sort of a, a, a broader lens instead of saying, like, well, this is the thing that we have. And now these people aren't fitting into this thing that we have. Why aren't they fitting into the thing that I'm trying to make them fit into? When you go and you do research on what sexual orientation means for people who are not living in the States uh, specifically, um, it tends to be a lot more related to things like relationships and not sex, which is actually very interesting. And I think he does mention relationship orientation a couple of times since this. That would have been a really interesting thing to also explore in this. It would have taken him further away from the legal stuff, I guess, but I would have enjoyed it anyway. Well, and that is also the discourse, like when you go to polyamory conventions and people are asking the question in a session, why, you know, should we, should we be a sexual orientation? Should we be focusing our effort on trying to be classified as a sexual orientation? The argument is always for the protection and for the rights. I've never heard someone get up and go, I have a really coherent reason to think that it's an orientation and in an important way that it needs to be classified as an orientation outside of access to rights and protections. I think at the end of all of this for me, that's the only reason that, that these orientations exist. It kind of likens it to race protections or other legal protections. Orientations as a, as a construct seem to exist primarily for these legal protections of not necessarily to be accurate representations of all people in all situations. But that's what I mean. You're taking something that's been designed for a legal purpose. It's not surprising to me that the people that have like a legalistic payout for using these words would obviously then want to use the currency of that language in that way. But there, it's, that doesn't mean that it's, that language is not being used in, a, in another way that has like maybe more or at least the same value in another context. So when you're going to a, a poly, like a polyamorous conference and someone's like, well, we should really like try and, and get our politics of recognition in by using these, these um, this like legal groupings that we've made, but we're going to pretend that it's not made specifically for this legal grouping. That's when all of this mess comes up, right? Mm-hmm. If you're looking at literature about sexual orientation in a sort of like, not just a historic way that he presents here, but also in like a sort of an ethnographic way or a cross-cultural study way, you do end up having like a lot more like the, the, the understanding of sexual orientation that we so quickly managed to just agree on at the beginning 
all of a sudden that comes apart. And all of a sudden, we can't even agree what a sexual orientation should mean and is. We can't. And then obviously, then you can't have a discussion about why those things will work as legal objects. I'm saying the only reason they make sense as legal objects is because that's how we are trained to think about them from our sort of like cultural background. Whereas like my sexual orientation has been like the least stable part of my personal identity. I've gone through several labels. Mm -hmm. Well, I think though that the sexual orientation language, at least in America, was formed through this kind of intentional divisiveness among people who are in the broader GSM communities, right? Where the idea is if you can dice them up into little groups and you can give the more acceptable, more um, ones that are more closer to the hegemonic ideal privileges, you can undercut the movements and the power of those movements to do sweeping large section change. Like, to my mind, you know, they said that, like, they're talking about how this, the early patterns were based on sort of race politics. This, for me, would be like, like, getting a sexual orientation protection is the equivalent to when the white people added Irish and Scottish to being white, rather than making it illegal to discriminate on race. Right, so that it's <laughs> really you, good, you know, like, really good, in, like <laughs> yeah, like I don't want to be added to the bottom of the hegemonic totem. I don't want to be sort of the sad person they feel bad for, but they accept and they accept it because I'm going to help them oppress everybody else. So I get this sort of halfway step of privileges while cutting off the legs from the rest of the movement, you know, towards that acceptance, and it should just be what you decide to do that's not harmful to other people with your body shouldn't be something that can get you fired. And there's, there's the only reason you need the language around sexual identity and sexual orientation um, distinction and sexual orientation as a legal distinction is so you can say, we can fire you for most things, just not these things that got too popular. They got popular enough, we couldn't fight them, so we just added them into the acceptable terrain. Moved them from column A to column B. Mm -hmm. they move move whatever little bit you have to to balance out the scales yep so that the the, whoever you've left over is not loud enough yep and then as they get louder you pull a little bit over yep and you still get to yeah so then what what do we uh (laughs) (laughs) i like that frustration face jesse you're like oh it's insidious and it is it's horrible it's exactly the problem it is so should we be louder or should we not? I think this is like the, the next question, right? Like he's he's posing here polyamory as an intimate practice, identity or sexual orientation. If we're saying we're not really interested in being a sexual orientation, ask three people on behalf of all polyamory people, right? Then then <laughs> then what is it? Is it because uh, I, I again, I will say I don't think he goes into enough detail in this paper to really like be able to argue for one over the other. I think all he does is like really focus that on the sexual orientation being potentially not the best idea. But would we still classify it as an identity or is it an intimate practice? Can it be both? Well, I think identity is about how you, the language you use to form the frame that lets you perceive yourself and express yourself to others. So I'm never going to tell someone what is and isn't an identity. I think for me, polyamory is an identity because I think it tells you very quickly a lot about me when I express that to you on first meeting, that I do use it in the the smaller cut way that people tend to use it. I am more interested in longer, deeper emotional relationships than broader sexual relationships, etc. And other things that it just, it 
you know, like any good word, it gets you closer. It doesn't actually answer the question about who you are, but it helps bring, narrows the field a little bit to make that conversation more plausible. Definitely. I, I think I, I agree with that a lot and, and about how I use polyamory also to identify myself. I, I think my overwhelming feeling is we shouldn't, we shouldn't need any language about sexual orientation. It shouldn't be something that we bucket into categories. And as you said, Michael, as long as everybody is happy and not harming anyone and, and doing what they like, we shouldn't be putting these boundaries on what those things are and which ones are okay and, and which ones aren't. But I, I think in terms of is polyamory specifically an identity or an orientation? Um, so like other discussions about sexuality is that it's not a, it, it's not a, a binary choice. It's fluid and it changes. And some people may very strongly say, no, being polyamory is something that has been part of me since I was a kid. And this is how I think. And this is that. And other people may come to it and it may change and you know, there's plenty of people that, you know, may start in a in in a different form of non-monogamous relationship and, and develop that just in the same way that somebody may identify as heterosexual and then that may change over time. And I think as with all things to do with orientation and the sort of not in this very strict legal discussion, but in a more social cultural context, I really think it's a much more fluid movement over life. And that's also part of what I think I appreciate about polyamory is it's an embracing of the fluidness of relationships. And so trying to categorize it sort of seems counterintuitive. I was going to say also to sort of complicate the linguistic strain there, if someone said that they identify as having a polyamorous orientation because for them it doesn't feel like a choice, it feels like an a give, absolute given they cannot affect, I think that's a valuable thing to be able to express outside of the legal context. As, as you were saying, versus if they want to use it as an identity, if they want to see it as an orientation. I think those are both fine. So I'm not saying what people should say about how they describe themselves. I'm making claims about the ethical grounding, especially as it relates to the larger legal, uh, international, colonial law structure that we have pervading the world right now. Mm-hmm. I can see a philosophical basis, though, for potentially the argument that polyamory is an intimate practice and not an identity and obviously everyone can identify how they want I definitely personally identify as polyamorous but I can see the philosophical argument potentially that in order to to do to do the polyamory in order in order for that to be part of the framework of your life you it requires another person's interaction it has to be it's not something that is individual inside yourself oh i disagree on that one but you finish and then we'll I'll, I'll. I, I am kind of playing devil's advocate because i as i said i i do identify as polyamory and i do think it's like probably more hardwired in me than any of the other sexual orientations i've ever taken on but to play devil's advocate there is, I think, this important distinction between, like, let's say if you are calling yourself uh, queer, like, as a as a generalized term that you feel really comfortable with, you know, transgender or something. It's it's a relate it's an identity label that sort of can relate to you, irrespective of everyone else that's around you in a way. Obviously, it's always going to be in relation to like a wider social structure about like what the concept of gender is and heteronormativity. But but generally speaking, it's an identity that like it doesn't. It doesn't pertain to your like actions and the people around you. Whereas I think some would argue that polyamory is a practice. It's something you do with someone else. You have to have a relationship in order for that to even come to be. Now, I personally get around that by saying I'm polyamorous. 
but I could be in a monogamous or a non-monogamous ordinary relationship. And I use that, that label works that, that way of structuring that language in English works well. But I'm wondering what you guys think about that, like that potential, like next step in this philosophical conversation. Does it have legs? Does it have only one leg? For me, polyamory is definitely a, a position in the sense that you believe that relationships between other people should be formed in direct engagement with them in an authentic way and grow in whichever way makes the most coherent sense for you and that person as long as that doesn't harm anybody, um, as long as it's not obviously damaging or detrimental. And you that can be your position regardless of if you are engaging in any relationships, if you've yet to engage in any relationships, if you've decided you're no longer going to engage in any romantic relationships. For example, I can have that position and decide that I am no longer going to engage in relationships because I am no longer at the point in my life where it's healthy for me to date people. But I still have the polyamorous position and the polyamorous identity because of those strongly held beliefs about the way that I want to relate to other people and the way that I feel comfortable relating to other people. And none of those identities exist in a complete void. If you were alone on an island and never met anybody, you wouldn't be queer because you wouldn't be different than anything. You'd just be the thing. And you wouldn't have a, a interest in sex with specific types of people because there'd be no people. You would have never seen people. There wouldn't even be a fantasy life of people. Maybe you'd be into trees. I don't know. But, you know, so everything requires... I mean, especially I mean, identities... I mean, the word identity is about identifying to something. You know, all of that stuff requires being for others in order to make any kind of a sense. You know, if you're only a being for itself, then you have no way to reflect those identities back at anything because you're just an absolute in a void by yourself. So I think polyamory has as much legs as an identity as anything else. And an identity, as far as I can tell, are elements of your personality or the way that you wish to be treated that are important enough that you want to relay them to other people and to be able to celebrate them and incorporate them at a basic level into most of the parts of your life where they're appropriate. And to me, polyamory definitely does that. And they said this in the article as well, and I thought this was a good point. A lot of times people will list polyamory in a group of orientations. I mean, sorry, a group of identities, um, which is part of why it feels like an identity as well. So I don't just walk up to people and be like, I'm polyamorous when I'm trying to explain myself. I'm like, well, I am a anti-capitalist, polyamorous, um, you know, primarily heterosexual gender non-conforming individual and you know that bouquet gets a lot closer at who I am than not having that language would do and to relegate polyamory to be something as simple as how you have intimate relationships I think really devalues the level of complexity that people who the philosophical complexity that people who engage in polyamory bring to that term and to the way that they embody it and move through the world yeah and I also want to say uh, as you were talking about, it made me think about the use of the word polyamory and sort of people's definition of the, of what an intimate relationship is. Because I think that one of the things about polyamory is it, it gives you the opportunity, it gives us to reevaluate the sort of the societal construct of what intimate relationships are, whether those are sexual or not, whether those are yeah. even in person or not, or what those look like. Right? Because that opens up a whole different discussion. And so if I describe myself and I would in a conversation of who I am one of the things I would talk about in my identity is about polyamory 
But I would have to dive into more of what that means as I talk about what relationships sure. mean to me. Right. That word is and, not well defined enough to for that to be a that's just a starting jumping off point. <laughs> absolutely. But I think the other thing about it as a discussion of identity, Claire, sort of to your point of the do you need other people or not, or even how you're practicing or not, one of the one of the analogies that I use, I think I've used we've we've talked about it too, but is if you identify, for example, as bisexual or pansexual, um, which I do. So even though I'm predominantly dating female identifying people, that doesn't change my identity. It just happens to be where I'm at at the moment. And so with polyamory, even if you are, even if you may be monogamously in a relationship at the moment through, through choice or circumstance, that doesn't change that fundamentally, if that's how you identify, if that's how you think of yourself, you can identify however you want. What you're doing is not intrinsically tied to who you are. So I think that distinction is really important. I'm just going to bring my international flavor to this though, because I feel like some of what we've been saying just needs to be checked a little bit. That like most of the relationships that I've had that have been consensually non-monogamous, the jumping off point for that has been so far from a discussion of like identity and sexual orientation and using this verbiage at all. I think that that's important to say that even having these, this kind of like bouquet, if you like, of these things, as you so nicely put it, Michael, that is already sort of assuming a certain level of like egalitarian understanding of where people are coming from and like a certain egalitarian like ability to have that conversation which just wanted to just sort of mention that that's not necessarily the only time that consensual non-monogamy happens like you can enter into a consensually non-monogamous relationship without having this particular like brand of titles to be able to talk about yourself and what you want what you're looking for you can have a discussion which doesn't like come anywhere near what cleaves and what we have been speaking about in a way you're saying you can have a relationship which is in fact consensually non-monogamous but you never use any language to describe that that's what you're doing beyond we're allowed to be with other partners uh either romantically or physically yeah i i guess like this whole article gives quite a lot of weight to having labels to use almost so much weight that it would be inconceivable that you'd be able to do the thing without having these labels. And I know firsthand that that's not the case. You don't need to have nice, clearly defined, and it definitely helps. And you will have to figure it out between the people that are involved. But you don't, it doesn't have to come from a point where it's like a clear cut identity or like label for a practice or label for an orientation. It can come from like an honest discussion about what people want. Um, and I think we often might get a bit sidetracked from that when we talk about this because the verbiage that's used in this well in this paper but also in general when it comes to the way that polyamory intersects with things it's not the thing itself it's just a label to help us begin that journey but that's what that's what words are (laughs) i mean that's that's a true description of any words i mean it's like saying you can you can eat steak without having the word for steak but it certainly narrows down which type of meat you're eating if you have it. So it makes dinner conversations a lot faster. Like, what do you want for dinner? Oh, we don't have individual words for meat. Let's just describe the kind of animal. Like, it's very large, a couple, like maybe 2,000 pounds, sometimes furry, has horns. Do you want that for dinner? Like, you can have a discussion. Okay, then how do you want it? You want it ground, cut, you want it from the leg, the, the stomach. You can have the whole discussion without having words like ribeye steak. And you're still having a discussion about ribeye steak from a conceptual standpoint, even without the words. Uh, there's something that at least I ran into a lot in my time in my philosophy degrees where people would say, just because someone doesn't have the words doesn't mean they aren't saying the same thing. 
so that there's a mistake I think that philosophers often make where we'll say, well, they didn't have the word polyamory, so they weren't doing polyamory. And the claim is like, no, 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 no. If they're doing all of the things that you would describe with that word, that's what they're doing. That's still the value they have. They have the same underpinning reasons, potentially, even if they haven't enunciated to themselves. And actually, that's how the word gets its value, right? Like, if I, want, if I was using this in a language that wasn't English, which I've had relationships in different languages and still had to communicate this, this word doesn't exist in every language, you know? Um, it, you, so therefore, the word is completely used. It might as well be ribeye steak. <laughs> like, I might as well be like, well, I feel ribeye steak for you. Like, that might as well be the word that I'm using because it's so far from, like, what I'm actually... <laughs> like, I'm just not using it. It's not helpful for me. Um, but I do like to just sort of... Because, because this whole article is about how we're going to be using the words, it's important to say that, like, that they're only as helpful as the way we use them. And so, yeah, I, and I agree, and I don't want them to be fixed the way that a legal definition fixes something and starts to push it, and especially when you tie legal incentives to looking like the legal definition, that definition tends to become almost self-redundant. Like, like it gets narrow. Like they said in the article, it gets narrower, and that's so true, that it might start with sort of this general category, but then people keep having a lawsuit and going, well, is this person qualified? And then the judge has to rule, okay, well, this isn't quite polyamory. And that isn't quite polyamory. And so once you get into that legal definition where you're getting all these protections and they're very valuable protections, and you have this constant set of case law building up about what counts as being really authentically, truly polyamorous, legally polyamorous, people start aiming at that as the way they're going to be. And then that gets more fixed, but then the judges can pull it even closer because it's so fixed that any deviation can now be seen as enough deviation. And you just get these more and more fixed definitions to get these um, protections. I mean, the stuff in here is not surprising, but it is disturbing the, the dramatically lower rate at which people who are bisexual, who are trying to get protection from oppression in countries that kill people for being gay is horrifying because they're not they're not they're not really gay right i mean what but they've been identified by their by their country as being someone that they want to kill for the kind of sex they've had does it really matter if they've also sometimes had acceptable sex in that country <laughs> like how is that that's crazy and that's and we should be spending our time and effort and energy trying to get acceptance for the way people live their lives in non-harmful ways that aren't related to anything besides some outdated theocratic notions that we have floating around, not, you know, getting our tiny slice of the pie by capitulating to a specifically acceptable to a mononormative way of approaching the world. If you look at feminism, especially second wave feminism and first wave feminism, there's a lot of the work of first and second wave feminism were done by um, people of color, black women, trans women, um, queer, pe uh, queer people. And in both cases, when they got up to the legislation, they just sort of threw them under the bus and, you know, took what they could for their, for like for white women and ran, you know, and so it's what's, it's what generated critical race theory and intersectional feminism as an, as an approach to try and avoid that happening again. And I feel like this is that same kind of thing where it's like, all right, well, we're all in this, because they talk about the coalition building, and that's what they mean when they say it harms coalition building, is it incentivizes you to not support other things and to say things like, I think the hardest thing for me, because I, you know, I had all this theory when I was watching the gay 
marriage movement. And I was going, okay, I want them to be able to get married. I want everyone to be able to get married. I want to be able to get married to multiple partners. I think they should be able to get married. That's great. But you'd see them go up on stage and someone would say something to them like, well, once we let gay marriage happens, what's next? Multiple marriages? And they'd be like, no, 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 that's horrible. And I'm like, hey, wait, yeah. I've been supporting you. I'm voting for what you want. I'm trying to participate. You know, I go to your fundraisers. What? What? What do you mean that's horrible? Like, I will just say, by the way, that Cleese actually has a paper that's called The Slippery Slope. Um, and it's, it's about exactly that. It's about sort of like we spend so much time in the community sometimes picking apart like well this is you know this is how you actually meant to do it oh well, we're really different from the swingers oh we're so different from people who are monogamish we spend so many so much time drawing those divisions to the point where it's not just oh this is a more useful term for me to use because it better communicates something that's sort of like shorthanding it for me and ends up being like quite divisive um and i, I think in a lot of interviews that for because our season uh, like standard seasons is on the ethical slot which is like a very like you know easily accessible piece of information uh and like piece of literature to get hold of about this i've listened to a lot of podcasts on um janet and dossie and they they also say it's because they've been doing this for years now and they're like it's surprising that now there is this discussion about like splitting the hair that is non-monogamy or polyamory or whatever you want to call it into a billion different places instead of more of a discussion where it's like well we're all just like doing something that's countercultural like maybe we should just do the thing that's countercultural yeah well and the thing is the the response to that should have been yes letting people who have good healthy relationships get married whatever that looks like should have been next and then the next question is and what happens after that people marrying dogs and you go no dogs cannot give consent right that the that's the 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 blind should be consent right so inanimate objects dogs things that aren't alive or are alive but can't consent or have some sort of you know other reason like so that's the line right so we shouldn't be saying no 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 polyamory is okay because it's about love and there's some other relationships out there that aren't okay you know it should be consent health those are the questions is it healthy is it consensual and if it is we should all be saying that should be protected and going up to try and get rights by saying that those are not okay for me, isn't ethically consistent. It's just about getting what you can for yourself. I think the my counter-argument to that, or not even counter-argument, but I think probably why we're stuck in this sort of situation of getting at it piecemeal comes back to the cultural hegemony and the fact that everything is so entrenched in the culture, in the legal systems, politically, in the power structures, that, I mean, I don't agree with this, that, that it's like this, but unfortunately it seems like we've seen that the only way to make these changes is, has been so far piecemeal. And I don't know if that's because it's more power, like more palatable to th those in power. We spoke about this in our last bonus episode when we were talking about how men are, are perceived in the poly space and like the hegemony of what masculinity is and how we can just kind of shift that needle a little bit more towards a sort of like more healthy and inclusive ideal male or whatever and I feel like it's sort of a similar discussion like the the way to maybe begin to allow for a society that ha that has the space for safe sane and consensual adult relationships to be happening regardless of the form that they take is to do it 
not necessarily to fight under uh, a legal protection that was designed for somebody else and wasn't partic- wasn't carried out maybe the, the most ethical way. You just need to look at bioerasure and like the only very recent edition of trans rights to realize that it, it wasn't done well. It wasn't done kindly. Um, so maybe we just like live our lives out in the open until everyone gets on board. Well, and and right. Well, and that's you know. So the the general so intersectional feminism talks about the way that oppressions are intentionally enmeshed so that they're almost impossible to remove. So that when you act on only a single axis of oppression, like all right, we're going to give you just marriage rights, but people can still decide not to sell you cakes for that marriage or let you use their venue or even give you the marriage license. But hey, you've got the right. It doesn't do anything. And it doesn't make the kind of strides and spaces that you need. And that's the whole point. The whole point is to keep you running in circles in this bureaucratic nightmare where you you act only on one axis of thinking and not the entire series of enmeshed overlapping oppressions. Right. And then the response that intersectional feminism suggests for that is coalition building. And this is exactly what this is trying to undercut is it's trying to stop the movement. Because if, if, if the movement was large enough, if every single uh, GSM were voting and working together in a block they would have like even right now there's enough that nobody would be electable without working with that block but by dicing that block up into groups you know you're a business owner that's more important than being you know gay or that's more important than being polyamorous or that's more important than plus we're going to give you the rights that you need anyway so we're going to give polyamorous people these rights and also, don't you want that tax break for your business? You should vote for this thing that's against everybody else. That's how the, that's how that becomes as impassable as you think that it is. So when you say, oh, we, we can't do that, that's because we're not doing that. You know, that, that working together, supporting each other, putting our time and effort into making as livable as possible the situation we have and focusing on coalition building to get protections that helps everybody, not these little adjustment slices, that's... That's the way through for everybody eventually that isn't, in, and I don't want to be cruel today, even if that's in theory going to make things work in 50 years or 100 years or 200 years, and people go, oh, well, being mean and leaving everybody out, and that made incremental change, and that was helpful. Like, I, it, that's not the kind of life I want to live, even if that was true. I realize that sentiment. Yeah, unfortunately, it's a bit, you know, you know, like, it's it's a great sentiment, but I am left wondering, like, in reality, then what does that mean? It's sort of next steps. I feel like this this article came from a place that was like, okay, what can we do to like make life make lives better from for polyamorous people? Because like people are losing their kids, people are losing their job, their rent, like all of that. Yes, in the states, yes, white people, but like, <laughs> oh, I want to make this better for these people. Yeah, and uh, fortunately, you can't just do it for just one type of people. But then it becomes this like massive job that becomes just like a nice sentiment instead of actually like, okay, but practically, can I get in on that, like that conference? Can we have a speaker that's talking about non-monogamy at this at this rights activist group? Like, it we we end up not having like any practical steps. Um, and I will also say that that you like all of this is still happening in just the states. Like we're not even, yeah. You know, like lo- losing your kids is really sad. Losing your rent is really sad. But like try being killed by a tie around your neck. You know, like it's we're talking about completely different, disparate conversations when we talk about this from a more of a global perspective, which is you know even harder. Yeah. Well, and then I mean, the, there's a lot of answers to that, and we can't spend forever 
discussing it. But the very short answer is that there's there are things you can do immediately, like creating funds with lawyers who go and take those cases. Because in most cases, at least in, you know, I mean, obviously the, the more extreme cases that you're talking about, that's a whole different thing. And you need international pressure to stop people from doing rights atrocities for those sorts of groups. Uh, but those areas also still have those atrocities for everybody else. I don't know that making this a sexual orientation would stop them from heading that direction, right? There are still countries where they'll kill you for your sexual orientation, so that's not going to stop that either. Yeah, which Um, kind of says, actually, he does say, like, even if you were going to get in, even if that did happen, how much would it really help? But if you did have that kind of grouping where, like, in America, people can lose their kids, it can be a factor in it, it does happen, but it's not more of a factor, for instance, than a really good rights lawyer. So if you did have groups like you have with other rights groups where they get really organized. I mean, that was the big deal if you start looking at really what made the huge push for gay rights and gay marriage work. They started organizing, they started pooling resources, they started creating think tanks and lawyer groups and going out and fighting these battles for everybody all the time, everywhere, to make them just too painful for people to get into so that it was worth it to just go ahead and pass a citywide ordinance to make it less of an issue so that you didn't have to deal with it. The other thing we've kept saying is polyamory specifically a lot of it is talked about in the, the white, upper middle class, socioeconomically empowered context of the U.S. And so for some of the people practicing polyamory, those consequences are not as real. You have, you have the, the financial ability, the education, the legal resources, whatever it is, to protect yourself from that individually. Yeah. But the only way to build that coalition is for everybody, especially those who are already in other ways empowered to to have to build the voice which is getting back to your point of building the coalition but i think the broad answer to your question claire was if we want this to be accepted and to not face this persecution or these limitations for being polyamorous in whatever way people practice that is by getting people to be out and open about it to support each other in it and to build that coalition so that it can be normalized well, especially if your polyamory is, you know, like we've all been saying ours is, which is, it is flexible, it is whatever we think it is, and it changes all the time. <laughs> the uh, sexual orientation legal definition method is not going to get you there. It's going to get you some small protections that you can retreat inside of. It's not going to get you the, the kind of open life that you wanted. You can find Polly Pages on Instagram at Polly Pages. And if you have any questions or comments for us, please feel free to send them to pollypages at gmail.com. Our awesome intro and outro music is by Mint Green, and you can follow them on Instagram and Linktree at Mint Green Music. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Books.